You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. The topic of women in ministry has felt like a polarizing subject for years in the church. Today on Common Grace, we talk with Davida Foy Crabtree, who has been pastoring and leading people since the 1970s. She shares some of her incredible journey with us as we discuss the importance of churches championing women as leaders and as pastors, and having full inclusion in life of leadership and ministry. I want to welcome Davida Foy Crabtree to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, George. Glad to be here. I've I'm just been really excited about this interview in particular. I ran across your work really randomly. Like I just I think I saw like a reference to it somewhere and I kind of saw saw that you were involved in on the ground practically empowering the gathered and scattered church. You don't find too many people that are uh, too many pastors. And churches that have embraced that model or that paradigm. And so, I just started learning and, and kind of following some of your work. And so, I was really excited to, to meet you and you were so gracious <laughs> to, to share some of your experience and to, you know, start a relationship. And I, I just feel like there's a, a real resonance with who you are and what you're about. So, I'm so excited. And I just wanted to start with a little bit of your background, a little bit of your story. So, would you mind just sharing a, a bit of your story, a snapshot that's, you know, maybe helpful for context today? Sure. Um, I grew up an only child of older parents for their time out in a rural, small village here in Connecticut. I always say there are about 475 people in that village, and I was related to 300 or so of them. Our little church on the green had about 22 people in worship on Sunday, which tells you a lot about my family, and except uh, Christmas and Easter, of course. But the youth group at the church tended to be around 40. And I've often said, I don't know why we didn't just take over. We could have. (laughs) In some ways, we did. We made it very attractive for seminarians who were studying at Hartford Seminary or Yale Divinity School to come and be our part-time pastor. So I grew up in this rural Connecticut, tiny village, probably the turning point Two turning points in my life. When I was about six or seven, my mother started giving me books about girls who grew up to do something important. And every Christmas, every holiday, every birthday, I got another book. And I think that made a huge difference in my life because in that little village, I wouldn't have had a vision of any difference that I could have made in the world. But to learn about, oh, I don't know, Molly Pitcher and Harriet Beecher Stowe, Belva Lockwood, on and on and on, really probably was a major influence on my life. And then the second one I would say was when I went off to church camp, the Silver Lake Conference Center in Sharon, Connecticut, our United Church of Christ camp and conference center. And wow. Uh, This gangly, awkward, homely little kid from Northfield, Connecticut, uh, woke up to a discovery of Christ in a new way, to a discovery of my life and my potential, to what others saw in me that I certainly didn't see. 
those two things are probably what had the greatest influence on me. Mm. You know, it sounds like your your mom was a was an amazing woman and a and a leader herself. She was. She was a my father was a typewriter mechanic. He repaired typewriters. My mother was a teacher in the school system who when I was growing up was a sixth grade teacher, but when I went to junior high, she decided to teach in the junior high. I think she was worried about me as an only kid of older parents. I was probably lacking some social skills. And so she became a math and science teacher at the school, organized the Litchfield Education Association, which in those days was tantamount to being a union organizer. And just, it was very creative in her teaching in a way that was really ministry. Mm, that's so cool. So, you know, you you are and you have been an incredible leader, really, I think, forging new paths for people. Like, you haven't been afraid to innovate and try new things. And so, I wanted to talk a little bit about the innovation and activism you've done. But But maybe before we get there, in our day and age, female leadership has maybe in the church had some polarization around that. Maybe just share with us the importance of the church grasping females as leaders and pastors and having full inclusion in, in life of leadership and ministry. Well, you know, in the United Church of Christ, it's there's not an issue. We've been ordaining women since 1853 and celebrating women's gifts for much longer than that. It's had its moments of controversy, and almost every position I ever occupied, I was the first woman. First woman. Whoa, whoa, boy. To me, I was just being Christ's minister. You know, when I look at women in ministry, all I need to do is recall the resurrection and the fact that Christ appeared to the women and told the women to go preach the resurrection to the disciples. That's all that enough said. What else needs to be said? Christ chose the women to carry the word of his resurrection. Hello. <laughs> so, so it's hard for me to even talk about it because for me there's no controversy mm. i know that there were people who were anxious whenever i was called to a position because we'd never done it that way before and my attitude has always been great let's do it and i think that Honestly, I believe that when the church resists women's leadership, it shows how much the church is culture bound. Mm. That the church, in those instances, the church has bought what culture tells us, not what Christ tells us. Wow. Maybe you could just share the impact other seeing other women blossom in, and really we're talking about mutuality and partnership, building the kingdom, you know? And for you, it, you know, hearing that women you should lead is like hearing the sky is blue. It, you know, it's like this is kind of part of how it, you've always viewed the world. But, you know, many people don't come from that background. And maybe just paint a picture of like why you think it's so crucial and so important for the church to get this. Well, at heart, I'm a pastor. I've occupied all kinds of other roles and jobs and calls. But at heart, I'm a pastor. So what I remember is about the second or third year in my in my parish ministry in Colchester, a mother came to me all excited because her kids had decided they were going to play church. And the daughter had to be the minister. 
because that was what they were seeing in worship. And wow, that's for that year. Let's see, that would have been 1982 or 83. That was just a delight, just an absolute delight, because until I was there, it never would have occurred to anybody that the daughter could play the minister. But beyond that, I think about all the times as a parish pastor that women would come to me, and men sometimes too, but the women in particular who had been subjected to abuse by men in their lives and for whom the image of God as father and the masculine descriptions of God had totally removed them from any spiritual journey. The work I had to do to restore the spiritual journey in their lives was profound. And I think that if I hadn't been there, they couldn't have stepped forward with the questions. They couldn't have been honest in the same way. Pastorally, I find a partnership between a man and a woman to be the best there is when it comes to ministry. Now, most churches can't do that, but there's a complementarity of gifts and skills of calling. It's not gender-based roles. It's life and what life has bestowed upon us, invited us into, and life experience. And we do experience life differently as men and women and people of all places on the gender spectrum. Full inclusion is a way of reflecting God in the midst of our world. It's a way of embodying God's hope for all of us, that we will be stretched beyond the narrow confines that cultural sex roles, gender roles, and what they do to us, which is so distorting. Mm. Hey, everyone. We'll be right back to this episode of Common Grace, but we wanted to take a second and just say thank you for your support. Common Grace is made possible by your patronage and generosity. If you want to help us continue Common Grace, consider giving a one-time gift or a monthly pledge by clicking on our Give tab in the show notes. If you aren't able to give, please consider sharing this podcast with your friends or family and rating us on Apple Podcasts. These are the best ways to help us reach more people. Now let's get back to our conversation, and thanks again for listening. You have a real foundational belief that you know, Genesis 1 and 2 definitely were written before Genesis 3. And so, what God has created, He's blessed. And there's like an original goodness and blessing. Although sin has distorted things, like you've just mentioned, there can be distortions that happen. But the way you look at things in what you've written and in conversations I've had, it really recognizes gifts of God first and foremost. Can you maybe speak to that a little bit and how it's related to your perspective? You know, because I grew up in the tradition I grew up in, I didn't grow up with a focus on sin and guilt and shame. I grew up with a focus on joy and release and generosity of spirit. And that has, I can't control that. That's just how I understand the Christ spirit, that it's about joy, not condemnation. It's about stewardship, not domination. It's about being clothed, as Galatians says, being clothed in Christ. And when one is fully clothed in Christ, it's joyous generosity of spirit. It is about my openness to all 
that God has given us, regardless of the judgments that many in the culture would exact. I simply look for the good because that's where I have always found Christ. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Maybe step into a little bit of your story and your identity as an activist, which I'm sure is you know, deeply connected to your understanding of God's goodness and the gospel. It is uh, that there's a funny twist to that, however, because as an only kid of older parents being socially awkward, unsure of myself, homely as a kid, and I didn't like the way I was treated. I could not have named that in those days, but that caused me always to identify with and care about anyone who is on the edge of society, anyone who is less cared for, less valued. I often have said that that my tradition, the congregationalist part of our tradition, deeply the kind of the kind of spiritual community that instead of turning a blind eye to suffering in the world, our native instinct is to turn toward the suffering, turn toward the pain, try to be present and to make a difference and not to deny someone's reality because it's their reality to define, not mine. So there's this contrast between what I experienced as a kid where I was bullied and teased and all those kinds of things and my sense of Christ. In seventh grade, eighth grade, the beginning sense that I was called to ministry. And I've often said that my call to ministry was a bit unique, perhaps. And that was I went off to Silver Lake Conference Center. Probably my second summer there, I came home and said I wanted to be a minister. I went back to school that fall. And when the teacher asked, you know, about your summer or whatever, and I put my hand up and said, I decided what I want to be. And the whole class laughed because girls couldn't be ministers. And my sense was my call didn't happen at Silver Lake. It happened in that moment when that gangly, homely, awkward kid put her hands on her hips and said, oh, yeah, well, you just wait and see. (laughs) Um, And it was that starch in the spine that really captures my call. And that's connected to the activism. All of that's bound together in that sense that I can't see suffering and not respond. I have to be careful not to (laughs) overfunction, but I have to figure out where's the jugular in that suffering where I can go for that jugular and transform it. Mm. So that's that helpful. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're painting a beautiful picture internally and then how that that it takes shape externally maybe you could you know give some of the key areas or key forms that activism took in your life well when i was about 11 or 12 i received a copy of ingenue magazine which was then very popular for tweens and the cover article was 15 ways or, or 12 ways or 20 ways to catch a boy in school And it was all about, you know, take chemistry, take mathematics, take shock. And I was furious. I was just furious. And I sat down. 
my mother never even knew about this. I sat down and wrote a letter to the editor about how I was not, <laughs> I was not in school to catch a boy. I was in school to learn. And if I was going to take chemistry, I was going to be a chemist, et cetera. That's not what I said in the letter, but that was the basic approach to it. And they published it. And my the next, when the issue came out in which it was published, I took it to my mother. She said, oh, no, <laughs> look at what we've done. <laughs> but that was probably my earliest. And I continued. I had no idea. Of, I really didn't know anything much about suffrage, although I had read all those books that my mother had given me. So there was a lot I didn't know. But over the years, the early years, most of my social justice work was around women and women's issues, because that would have been when I was, that would have been 1956 or 57 when I wrote that letter and continuing up through seminary. And even at my liberal seminary, I had one class where I put my hand up at the beginning of the semester and the professor never called on me. And so my hand was up all through class the entire semester. And I never got called on. I don't know where I got the guts for that, but I think I knew that I would lose myself and my calling if I allowed that world to determine the world around me. Then, because it, when I was in seminary, it was the 60s, so the Vietnam War, I was active against the Vietnam War, very active around racism and racial justice issues on environmental issues, those have been my primary areas of concern. Not that that doesn't encompass most of everything when you get down to it. Absolutely. Do you have any lessons that you feel you've learned in your activism that would resonate and be pertinent for listeners today? Yes, I think so. There are the lessons learned in being the, being the early one, being the one who first to some degree, almost alone, but not, not completely alone, but very few of us raising women's issues in the life of the church. The quality of persistence, nevertheless, she persisted, um, uh, is, is just crucial. You must listen to people. You must hear where they're coming from. But there are times when you just have to say, no, you need to understand and to persist, to be as articulate as you can be and press forward, even when all of the power is coming against you. Mm. You had mentioned working with marginalized people like in underdeveloped countries, and, and you talked about a concept with me about kind of mutual discovery mutual learning. Maybe you could just speak to that for a moment. I had the great privilege as a relatively new young minister of going on an international trip with the chief officers of the denomination back in 1976. And we went to India, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Japan. And I have been since then in many other places in the developing world. What struck me on that trip was the quality of mutuality in the way Christians were living out their Christianity in each of those settings. 
in those days, the United Church of Christ missionaries were much more about the self-development of peoples and the teaching of the faith in the context of their own culture, rather than condemning their culture and converting them to Western ways, which we had been guilty of for a long time. But we had come to a repentance of that and a way of turning ourselves around. And so I encountered these young Christians all across the developing world who who had this phenomenal sense of the vitality of the life of the church and and of the church's mission and of the church's presence, particularly in the context in India of a Hindi society, in Indonesia, a Muslim society and in you know, Japan and, and wherever of many other religions. And what's the quality of the witness and presence of the Christian community? And how do we as North Americans operate in solidarity with not controlling, not dictating, but in deep mutuality of mission and of care and concern for one another? Because of that, I think I internalized a huge amount of those experiences. And when I went to parish ministry, much of how I lived that out, I lived out of that concept of the self-development of peoples. Wow. Davida Crabtree, thank you so much for sharing your story and just some of the wisdom you've collected as a leader in the church. Thank you. So glad to be with you, George. listening to Common Grace, a Whitewater podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions about this episode or have suggestions for future topics, send an email to info at whitewaterchurch.org. Thanks for listening.